And so my interests and my curiosities were always met with a really receptive audience in my parents and in my grandparents. I know how much that meant to my confidence and my sense of the possible from the youngest age. You're listening to Skip Intro with me, Krista Smith. Few children can tell you what they want to do with their lives, but Todd Haynes happened to be one of them. During an appearance on the Art Linkletter Show in 1968, a popular TV variety show at the time, a then seven-year-old Todd shared that he wanted to be, quote, an actor and an artist. By the time he got his master's from Bard College, Todd had done exactly that, stirring up attention with his groundbreaking, explosive short film, Superstar. While using only Barbie dolls, Todd examined the life of singer Karen Carpenter in a way that was at once shocking and incredibly moving. Just a few years later, in 1991, his debut feature, Poison, won the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival. Over the years, Todd has established many enduring creative relationships, the first being with the legendary independent film producer Christine Vachon, who he met while attending Brown. Both of them were semiotics majors, and I'm embarrassed to say that this host had to look up what that meant. She has gone on to produce every single one of his feature films. The other is with Julianne Moore, who cut her teeth alongside Todd and Christine in his 1995 film, Safe, and has since starred in Far From Heaven, which Julianne and Todd received Oscar nominations for, I'm Not There, the reimagined Bob Dylan film, and Wonderstruck. Today, we're here to talk about their fifth collaboration, May-December. In addition to continuing Todd's work with Julianne and Christine, May-December also marks his first collaboration with Natalie Portman, who also produced and stars in the film Opposite Julianne. It's yet another remarkable film in Todd's canon, and I am excited to talk about it with the director himself, plus dig into the path that led him to this moment. I have to admit this. Todd, it's really nice to meet you. Krista Smith here. Nice to meet you. I'm a little bit starstruck. I have done about 170 of these podcasts with unmentionable and mentionable talent, but I am so excited to talk to you and you have to help me out here. But when I saw the superstar, I it was right out of I was right out of college, Colorado, like just a greenhorn and it was in some schoolhouse on the Lower East Side, I feel like maybe Houston, a schoolhouse, and it was part of a bunch of other films, and it would have had to have been in either 89 or 90. And I saw that movie, and yeah. it just changed the way I viewed cinema. I always loved movies, and, and growing up, I had to watch every World War II movie with my father, and movies were a form of you know, your dreams have become reality or whatever. It was just like escapism. I love that world. I was just starting at Vanity Fair magazine. I was interning at the Worcester Group. I was all about that space and time. And I remember that film and then John Cassavetti's A Woman Under Influence are the two things that just blew my mind. So I have been a stan with you since like oh, that time. So that's amazing. Thank you. Because I, I'm try when you first described it, I thought it was films, films Charis. This, which was really the first place Superstar was shown, but then when you say it was 89, 90, 
it wouldn't have, I don't think it was there, but anyway, it, it did, it had a brief moment where it was being shown freely before the legal uh, cease and desists came and shut it down, which I knew would happen. But, um, but the fact that it showed as, as vividly and, you know, profusely as it did for a year and a half was amazing. Yeah. And I mean, I think I married my husband because he had one of the bootleg copies of it. So, you know, <laughs> but a long way of introducing. I am thrilled to talk to you. I am such a fan of your work. Thank you so much. All of them beg repeated viewing, which is something that I think is so important and is just really the qualities of a great film is if you want to see it again and again and you see different layers in it every time. So May, December, it is fantastic. I loved it. From what I've read, this was a script that was kind of on the blacklist. Natalie, but like, keep me honest here. Natalie Portman uh, apparently gave it to you. You read it. You were the one that thought of Julianne. I mean, I'm going to get to that relationship with Julie a little bit uh, later. But what was it about this script? And, and do actors often send you scripts? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I get, I get, look, as soon as I cracked open the door uh, I, this, I, I guess this was, I mean, Mildred Pierce was sort of a gateway project because it was adapted from a novel. I did the script with John Raymond um, and, and of course other the films I've made before had novels as, as influences and inspiration for sure. But this was a very, very faithful adaptation of the James M. Cain original novel. Um, but from that point on, I was like, you know what? I'm open to reading stuff, seeing what's out there. And um, and so from then on, I, I would get scripts from from actors and, and, and producers and so forth. And the whole process is, and that resulted, you know, in, in Carol and, 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 and a lot of, uh, and Wonderstruck, uh, Dark Waters. I mean, a really great, great experiences for me as a director and May, December and, um, uh, so, so yes, and and Natalie had sent me Natalie had even sent me something a few years prior to May December that didn't work out and and wasn't something either of us pursued, but the interest in working together had been established. Mm. And what was it about the script that made you want to direct this? The film owes everything to that incredibly original way of framing a domestic tabloid story 23 years later and bringing together these two female characters one the, the woman at the center of that that scandal who's now raised a whole family and an actress coming to town to play her in a film so i i guess by concept alone the very structure of how sammy birch structured it meant that we were going to be peeling back layers and asking questions and that we would and that you sort of initially think that the natalie portman character elizabeth barry is going to be our reliable mm. person from the world outside who penetrates this little town and it was originally set in uh, camden maine but all everything that you you might presume as as stable positions that you might take as you as you, your feelings about these characters, who you trust, who you might project some moral judgment onto, all of those things start 
are are constantly destabilized as you read it. And I just loved that about her her mission as a writer and how subtly and confidently it, it took incredible confidence by a young writer to to keep to that. And and so it was it made you incredibly uncomfortable and it made you constantly think about what you thought about everything that was happening and who these people were. So it was kind of a no-brainer. I mean, it was she sent it to me in, in the height of COVID in, in 2020 when a lot of stuff was circulating. People were sending each other a lot of stuff, and most of the industry was shut down. Natalie was in Australia, and she was working. So I was like, when things come back up, and I had another project that I was planning to do next, I said, this is really exciting to me, and and, and particularly exciting was starting to talk to her about it mm-hmm. and really get in deep with Natalie. We'd spoken before and, and I I know how 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 incredibly thoughtful and brilliant she is. And I've seen her performances and, and the choices that she's made. But getting into the, the sort of vicissitudes, the nuances of this character and, and the sort of devilish curiosity of sort of playing with people's expect uh, projections or, or or presumptions about who Natalie Portman is as an actress projected onto um, Elizabeth Barry and and just how disturbing and unsettling it is when you think all the disturbing unsettling parts are gonna you know just pertain to the Gracie Joe story and in fact no. Uh, Natalie, Natalie's character is a piece of work and the way that we were able to talk about it and how easily I think, I think we shared um, suggestions and notes about changes, uh, slight adjustments in the script. Um, But talking to Natalie made me think about Julianne Moore and the way she loves to enter into these places of inscrutability in the depictions of women and in care and in stories in general and how she does not want to put the viewer at ease. You know, like how you ignite a viewer's thinking and questioning, like that is the, that is opening up something that's incredibly potent and special. And a lot of movies sort of shut that down, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I, I could not think of Julianne and so very quickly. And so also what script comes where there's two lead women and one's, hovering around 60 and one's 36 years old. And you're like, holy shit, this is like, for me, this is a dream. So I could (laughs) could have these two ages of women be up front and center in this, in this story. I wanted to go to her and Natalie was like, oh my God, you think she, you think she'd do it? (laughs) All right. So I'm, and I am going to get into Julie, but one thing I wanted to ask you at this top, you had said once about how the world has amnesia about female driven films. And it kind of was around the time of Carol, right? Because obviously that was another two-hander, two great female actresses, as is this one. Did, did this one come together quickly for you, easier for you uh, with this, with this script? And you had, like you said, you have uh, Julianne Moore, uh, you know, Oscar winner, Natalie Portman, not, you know, the top, um, the top working actors today was it was it a struggle to get it made it, it it wasn't a struggle to get it made it was a struggle to get um any kind of sizable budget for it just 
despite everything you just said. So we we had interest right away, but there was sort of a top top line that people weren't willing to cross in terms of how much we could make it for. And so we we learned very quickly that this is going to have to be a pretty low budget venture. Mm-hmm. And because it was basically contemporary, I mean, we've set it back a little bit in time than it was originally written, not that it really mattered, but it was a contemporary film. But when things that were in the way, another project of mine, Natalie was completing a series, Julianne had a potential conflict that was hovering and eventually it went away. When we when we found that m- m- moment that we could all three jump in, we did. And, and it was due to a whole other slate of amazingly, of incredible, almost all women mm-hmm. who, who made the film get financed, who got the film financed. I'm talking about Christine yes, Dashon and Pam Hoffler, but also so many of our female, of our producers on in part of our team that included Natalie's team. We took what we could get and we decided to do it down and dirty and fast. It was a very, very short shoot, no rehearsal time to speak of. And we mounted it very quickly. This all arose around the summer and we were already scouting Savannah in August of 2022, right? Yeah. I don't know. After COVID, what is time, Todd? <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> well, I mean, you shot it in 23 <laughs> days. This is what I, the film is so, uh, to hear you describe it is exactly how you uh, absorb it. It's like, it's it's so easy to watch, but yet it's so uncomfortable, but yet you can't yeah. not watch it. You're just, it's sucking you in. And the, and the women are incredible. I mean, to hear that you had no rehearsal because so much of what Natalie's doing is informed by what Julianne is doing. And the fact that the, those two just dropped right in and were able to deliver those uh, performances is pretty incredible uh, because 23 days is really not a lot of time at all no. in, in this magical movie-making business. So, Charles, the other third leg of the stool, which is interesting because you do, you go through... I love the way we follow each person and our my at least I can only speak for myself my POV changed every time. <laughs> like my sympathies yeah. aligned and wherever I was with that character my sympathies went with them which was I thought was a fascinating um thing to kind of experience because it, it created so much like I just kept thinking more and more about it and and kind of examining how I was thinking about it while I was watching. Uh right. but Uh, The discovery of Charles Melton, and I know he's not really a discovery because there's a giant fan base from him from his like uh, other TV show. But he's so great in this. And the fact that he's able to hold his own with these two other uh, lionesses is amazing. Um, But what a discovery and what a performance you got out of him. And he really rounds this out. Um, Did you see that immediately when casting him? I... I have to say, I was I was astonished by his reading. Joe needed to be an attractive man, you know, in in his thirty in, in his thirty later thirties, no question, and someone that you liked and you could sort of imagine a backstory. Although I it took me a little time to sort of be able to fill that in for myself, but I didn't I didn't picture somebody quite as sort of hunky and and model 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 beautiful as as Charles. And so when we first saw his picture, we were like, 
oh, okay, well, this probably won't work, but let's hear what he did with it. And and this, I was working with Laura Rosenthal, my casting director from since 1998, Velvet Goldmine. Um, and we really do go through a process together which tries to kind of almost trick each other into maintaining a sort of neutrality and an objectivity. And that often means trying, you know, sometimes you need to try to find name actors for financing mm -hmm. purposes and so forth. And sometimes you you don't and you still find somebody who we know and love and whose work we really ad admire and who might bring some some value to the film to be the ideal choice for a role. And in this case, there was none of that. Um, but I think we help each other to kind of see things with as le with the least amount of baggage as possible. And but what Charles did in his reading um, completely on directed by me at this stage just what he his his first instincts um was unlike any other actor that we read and there was something very locked up and very simple and restrained about about his um reading and it and all of a sudden it was like i we, i just kept watching it and watching it again and again and 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 it informed me this is always what happens when you make a movie and you want it you always want it to happen to the utmost degree within the parameters of decisions that you feel you've made but i felt like i was learning about the story through what he brought to it it filled in the backstory for me all of a sudden the entirety and the viability of this of this just challenging and and relationship became visible and so he accomplished so much before we even ever met you know in that regard and 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 then we met and and i and then he and julianne read together and that was really lovely and that sparked a real camaraderie between the two of them they're both army brats they shared a lot of interesting similar histories together she loved him, you know, and, and this is a guy who just is coming up against, you know, these actors who have been doing this work for their entire career for so many years now. And he's really, this is a real new kind of film for him, new mm -hmm. kind of project for him. But he, uh, he's so, um, he's so grounded, he's so honest, he's so um, available and open as a man, as a, as a, as a man. At the same time, I think he was really, truly thinking about issues with his own upbringing and family life and um, and drawing very, very specific knowledge from his own life for this character. Yeah, it's a fantastic performance. All right. So this brings me to Julianne Moore. This is your fifth collaboration. You first met in 1993 when she auditioned for SAFE. Listeners, if you have not seen this film, please go see this film. It's on the Criterion Collection, I believe. You can watch it right now. I really want Netflix to get this movie. It's a shameless plug. It is just such a fantastic film that oh, I just rewatched it, and it holds up. It was kind of great to see L.A. at that time. But what was it about Julianne that when you first met her, that first interaction, like how did you what did you see then? And kind of could you talk about like what has led then to this incredibly fruitful collaboration over decades? The experience of, again, it was 
it was in the room where she agreed. She was just beginning to become a name that people were starting to mention around town, you know, and we were having a very hard time raising just the one million dollars we needed to finance safe. And it had taken two years after my first feature film, Poison. We thought it would, might be in our interest to maybe at least start to talk to actors in her in her with some little buzz um, around them. You know, I had a very strong sort of conceptual idea of what this film was about and who this woman was. And and many in many ways, it was almost through the negation of her as a protagonist that we would ever have seen in a movie that we would ever kind of imagine would hold your interest, a kind of woman who you might meet at a party or a person you might meet at a party and not remember anything about the next day. Somebody utterly unremarkable who felt like their, their sense of life was a sort of rehearsal or a kind of performance that they were sort of failing in and doubting. Uh, their ability to ever succeed in. This was what the starting point for this for this character, this woman. And 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 for this woman, you start to see her entire world falling apart when she develops these physical symptoms that start to put her at odds with her environment through the chemical exposure around her, or so we or so we are told. And so, and in many ways she gains more sense of herself through the crises of her physical body mm-hmm. in the world and the journey that it forces her on towards some kind of understanding of illness and self. But it ends up putting her back in another kind of environment that raises a lot of questions by the end of the film. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the film, the film is really about sort of interpreting illness and the kind of way we submit to culpability for the for the illnesses that manifest in us. But, you know, it was all well and good as a concept. And I really saw it visually. And I had my, I had the sort of visual language in my head and I knew what it was gonna look like, but but how difficult it was to actually find flesh and blood to manifest this character. That was the miracle of, of what happened in the room when Julianne came in and she read the script and she loved the script and felt like she understood in her mind who this character was. And she said to herself, it's something to the, something like, I'm just going to do what I am hearing in my head. And if it doesn't work for him, that's that's fine. But this is really what I see. <laughs> and she did. And, and it was an astonishing moment of just um, a completion of a sort of creative idea that became real in the room with this person, you know? And and so again, it took such incredible um, courage and and confidence and, and a sense of understanding the craft, I think, to know. And I think this is, we've seen this in performance after performance that, that what she doesn't do on screen and how she knows, how, how minutely she understands that the camera is going to pick up detail and, and, um, you know, uh, minute uh, expression, her trust in the sort of scale of the medium um, is so, and her understanding of that from the very beginning was so, was so phenomenal. You know, I, I still learn, I am, I'm always learning from Julianne and there's things that happen in, on the set that I can't even see 
I can't even detect exactly what it is until I see the footage, what she's done. And this is true from role to role to role. And, and, um, and I've, in, I've enjoyed performances that she's made in other films all along that, that are so remarkable. And they're courageous and they're diverse. And um, yeah, so, so the relationship has just been formative, of course, for me and, and many, I think, for her as well. Yeah, okay. That I love to hear you describe that like you don't even see what she's done until you're looking, you know, at yeah. the dailies or whatever, and then you're noticing it. Because there, there's one I would love for you to talk me through that scene where Gracie is teaching Natalie's character, Elizabeth, how she does her makeup. And yeah. it is so many things happening at once. It's like the most tense, erotic, crazy four minutes. It feels like it's all one shot. And the two of them morphing and just watching what Julianne is doing and Natalie kind of mirroring it, like it's it's incredible. And I know that Julianne always works on her, you know, it's about the voice and like with the stuff that she did for safe to, to, to actually sound invisible as well, right? Have this light yeah. voice and what she does with her accent and her voice and her, and her intonation as Gracie and this is, you know, she completely disappears into this, into this character. But can you talk me through shooting that scene with the two of them? Because it's so unique. Time and again, making May, December, because we had such limited time and because I did plan from the beginning and it, it almost made it the only way for us to achieve this film in the number of days that we had. It was both, a, it was, it was definitely an aesthetic choice. Um, but it ultimately became a practical choice was to play so many of these scenes in single shot setups. And that, that was one of them that it was just a static single frame medium shot that held the two women. Um, similarly, um, there was this motif that emerged in May, December, and it came initially from a decision I made when I first read the script that the final monologue that Natalie gives the letter that she recites as Gracie at the end of the film, toward the end of the film. Um, I just saw it immediately when I read it as a direct address uh, performance to the lens of the camera in a sort of, in a neutral background in a medium shot. And, and I was reminded of um, a similar scene in uh, Winter Light, Bergman's Winter Light, where a letter is read by Ingrid Thulin. And I was like, okay, I have to do this movie. If there's one reason I have to do this movie, it's to do that scene that way. So how do we make sense of that motif? I kind of worked back, I kind of reverse engineered the discourse. Now look, I was already, there's no way to re not read this script and think about Persona and other films uh, that engage with doubling, merging central female characters. Sometimes, very often, uh, one of them is an actress like in, um, uh, or an artist like in uh, Autumn Sonata. That's a mother-daughter merging uh, film. There's Three Women, uh, a, a, a Altman's amazing film in which Shelley Duvall um, and Sissy Spacek are kind of mirroring and mm -hmm. trading on each other. Um, and then there's films like uh, The Graduate and films about older women, younger men, uh, like Sunset Boulevard, um, like uh, the, um, Sunday Bloody Sunday, 
Um, but the beauty of the, uh, the particular beauty of the graduate is again, the minimalism of its, of its frame and how restrained the camera is in that film. And I don't, I insist that the humor of the graduate is as much due to how it's shot and how shots are sustained as it is by the brilliant performances. And that, and that it's a, it's, it's a, you know, you, it's a, uh, it's the sum total of all of those creative choices that make that film perform the way it does for audiences. And so I wanted to employ some of these ideas in, in, in May, December and the, makeup scene was a scene in which uh, so so we set up this idea that the mirror the camera would be the mirror in scenes where where a mirror played and you would be able to watch uh the two at women looking at themselves into the lens but then looking off lens at the other so they were we were watching them see themselves and modeling themselves on the other in real time back and forth, but with the absolute elegance of never seeing the mirror itself and just being the mirror. And, you know, I thought people would say to me, oh, wow, you know, wow, that was really, you know, at, at the best. I thought they would be like, that was so cool how you just held that shot, dude, for, you know, <laughs> four minutes. <laughs> And let them just, you know, I was really, it really, I was really distanced by it. I was really pulled out, but I was, it was really cool. I was, you know, very, very Bergman-y or something. <laughs> and no one's ever said that to me. They see this movie and they don't even notice. And I mean, look, per Persona doesn't work without Bibi Anderson and Liv Woman. Mm -hmm. But these shots don't work without these actresses in them, these actors in them. Because ultimately Charles also assumes a privilege moment in the mirror toward the end of the film, that same mirror in the bathroom. Um, but these scenes mark through, go through the film as a sort of progression. And uh, this one is, is a particular turning point where the wills of these two women and the ways in which they ultimately, you find ways that they reflect each other um, as, as people and as 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 very strong-willed women in the world, you know, despite how incredibly different their lives are and their backgrounds are and their occupations are and so forth, um, and you're watching the sort of nuances of that interplay and the things about the other that they see in themselves and the things about the other that they don't refuse to see in themselves. All this stuff gets played out in this sort of relay in which we occupy this very intimate place as the viewer through the through the mirror itself. Oh, it's a fantastic scene and and both of them are so good in it and just Julianne is like I, I can see when you're reading this there's no one else you would have thought of for that role like you like I mean aside from knowing your relationship obviously uh she's just she's just perfect in it. Um all right. So this kind of leads me to the women in your life and Christine Vachon. I would have to mention her uh, because she's a legend in her own right. Um, every year at Sundance, I went for 20 years. She was always there. Uh, killer films, you know, just a force. And you met at Brown, right? You guys met that. It, you have known each other that long. So yeah. But this isn't the only person that you've had creative relationships with. I, I love the fact that you identified early with with some 
soulmates, let's say, and Julianne being one of them, Christine be another one, Afonso, you, your editor you've worked with on numerous times. What is it that can turn like a singular creative partnership into a lifelong collaboration? It's fairly banal in a way, in the sense that it's just like you work with somebody and it and you have a great outcome, you know. And and with Christine and I, it was different because we were it was so formative. We were really discovering our our what our ambitions were and how we could put them into words and where we fit in the kind of zeitgeist of the culture at that moment. How we were sort of applying a sensibility that was being informed by what we had learned in the kind of films we we were exposed to in college and the and the kind of films that were also being made at the time in the in the 80s um and and she will say that she saw a superstar because we she made films at, at brown and i made films at brown and so we were both like these filmmaker and we and mostly we shared a bunch of friends and we kept missing each other because she took her year in France and I took a year off and, and I was in Germany and blah. so we we didn't really start really practicing um, filmmaking together until we graduated. We were both settled in New York City and started this nonprofit organization with another friend from college called Apparatus uh, Productions. This was with a friend, Barry Ellsworth. And Barry would work on my film. He was a, a really close creative partner of mine for Superstar, for my film about Rambo. That was my thesis project from Brown. And also he shot the black and white section of, of Poison. Um, and Barry sort of set up, invited us into a nonprofit organization venture that his that he did, did, built with some seed money from his family that enabled us to start getting close to the independent film community but in a very unique way where we were really serving the what we called experimental narrative filmmaking uh, community in New York and helping them to address the needs that they that were newly arising around a return to genre and stylistic references that experimental filmmaking had sort of eschewed for many years prior to this time. And all of a sudden, like some production support was needed for independent filmmaking, you know, for like short filmmaking. And around this time I was making Superstar and she came and watched and she finally saw me, saw a cut of it in my apartment in Brooklyn. And she said this, for her, it was sort of an epiphany where she was like, this is the kind of movie that I want to be associated with. And I want to be a producer and I want to produce her next movie. And so the kind of roles that we would end up playing ever since, um, starting with my first feature, Poison, and her first feature, Poison, uh, uh, came out of her seeing Superstar. And so it just, and, 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 you know, events take on a life of their own. And so Superstar had its sort of, a little moment of legal controversy and then became a film that was banned and had a kind of a kind of um sense of um the forbidden around it which created also a certain amount of desire to see it and um and poison entered in a sort of a, a political scandal around the far right when it was released and so it got a different kind of attention that we didn't expect at the time and then won the grand prize at Sundance and all these things and so you feel like you're kind of in a moment 
you're 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 together being cast in a moment historically and culturally that none, none none of and you know all of it was informed by hiv and aids and activism that christine and i were both very passionately um uh connected to and um and so you felt that there was a sense of necessity and urgency about the work we were doing but we were also getting rewarded for it from a creative standpoint and having early success in it getting out there to audiences and critics who were receptive because it happened to be that particular time in film history where that was the case and i and i so i'm as i'm you know there's so many levels of the fortuitous that uh line up around these relationships and their longevity and a lot of it is also the timing culturally historically when we were doing what we were doing where we were able to squeeze in the door and have something like superstar be written about in the village voice and everybody was talking about it for a time you know those kinds of things just wouldn't continue in the same fashion in years following but they were possible for us at the time and we and we seized those moments and and so you know but yeah i and and so yes and, and so in variations of that i found creative partners throughout my career with whom the the films would would um the experience of working with them would be a positive experience and then the the outcome would receive a certain amount of attention that that fortified all that um work and made you feel yeah okay we're on to something here let's let's try it again let's keep let's keep this going mm -hmm. yeah it is uh i i just love hearing about that because it is the stuff that bonds you when you're younger and that you guys have yeah. been able because this business is really hard and it's yeah. really hard especially with director producer director actor it's hard and the fact that it you've maintained these relationships over 30 years is remarkable. Um, and yeah. just to look at that with Christine and even with, with Julianne, I remember seeing at the time of Andy Fair and I, when I did the story on the 25th years uh, anniversary of the, the cover of the Hollywood cover and Julianne was, was the person that I helped put on that cover because I had seen, the, you know, I, I was one of those that like, Oh, this actress and she's in safe and the hand that rocks a cradle and she just got cast. And this this thing and like to think from that moment, she was the last girl on the last panel of the first Hollywood coverage. Just deal with that reality now uh, and the career right. she's had. And and that with you and the same with uh, with Christine. You all three have like have these incredible um, careers separately and together. It's a beautiful thing to, to see. I, I really admire it. Fills me with the warm fuzzies to see it. <laughs> um, all right. So I have a couple more questions for you. I know you do these lookbooks. Basically, we call them lookbooks in my um, in my business. But these these inspo boards about like you're thinking when you're doing these movies. You put any project you put together a lookbook of of things. And like you talked about some of this, like whether it's an image of persona or the image of the um, you know reading the monologue. You collect you collect these things that you hope inspire either the performance or you or the everyone working on this film, right? Now that this movie's out and done, I don't know what you're working on now, but in terms of your own inspiration, what have you been drawn to lately? Like what, what kind of is continuing to fascinate you at this particular moment about the human experience? 
Lately, it is it is driven by the project we're trying to develop. And it's this really exciting venture that, again, unfolded in, in a unique way in that Joaquin Phoenix came to me with some ideas and thoughts and um, and and sort of desires, I guess, uh, instincts. Um, now it's, I think, almost, you know, if time goes by so fast, but like three years ago, we started to talk. And um, and I've, I've known Joaquin for years. I've mm-hmm. never worked with him before. And I've worked with Rooney m- much more recently on, on Carol. And he came to me with some thoughts about a, about a story that he just uh, thought was staying in his head and, and was not formed. It was ideas mm-hmm. that were random that he wanted to bank off a, a, a director, writer, writer, director. And so we leaned into it and started to talk and swap ideas. And I brought in John Raymond, who is a writer, friend, who's probably best known in film for all his, all those scripts that he worked with in collaboration with Kelly Reichert. Um, but he, John and I had adapted Mildred Pierce together. And he's he and I worked on other projects together, some of which didn't come to fruition. Um, he lives in Portland. And between the three of us, we've put together this this um, story mm-hmm. about these two men. Um, and it's a it's a love it's ultimately a love story uh, with a sort of detective framework. Um, and but it's something I've never really seen anything quite like before. And Joaquin really was a driving force in in how extreme some of the interaction between the two men gets and and so we we did announce it while we were at can as a which i think is uh fair to say an nc-17 gay love story set in the 30s starring walking phoenix <laughs> this this will also sort of by definition need to be a low budget film i'm eager to reassemble as many of the creative partners that i enjoyed working with so much on may december Mm -hmm. i think it'll be a mexican-based production because the two men have to ultimately flee los angeles to mexico in the story and if there was a way to create la of the 30s in mexico it would probably be the most cost efficient way to do it i'm not sure if that will be entirely possible but that's our current aim (laughs) Um, but it's what right now I'm so proud that it, it we're going to share at least story by credit between the three of us. Um, and because we left behind before the strike hit, we have a we had a draft of the script that, that came yeah. out of uh, these, these past months uh, talking. That's great. Um, OK, I only have a couple minutes left, so I have to take you back to the beginning because I read your amazing uh, New Yorker profile and. How did you happen to appear on the Art Linkletter show at seven and then have the confidence to just say, I'm going to be an actor and an artist at seven <laughs> years old, like living in and you grew up in the bedroom of L.A., right? The valley, deep in the valley. Like, how can you just take me to how seven year old Todd ends up on the Art Linkletter show? Well, the Art Linkletter show would solicit kids from would 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 go to different elementary schools and and put bring kids from it was, everybody on that show. I believe was from my what's that first first grade class, second grade class, and 
so that was that was how they were doing kids say the darndest things or or it would eventually be called i think it was just called the art link other show back then and then they they sort of syndicated it as kids say the darndest things but look i was the lucky recipient of parents and grandparents who believed who loved the arts who wanted to expose i was the oldest of three kids but all three of us to uh, fine art and theater and film and ballet and classical music. And my grandparents were uh, second generation immigrant Jews uh, who, who had made their lives in Los Angeles, had both moved to LA when they were kids from other states in the US, but whose parents made the, uh, were original immigrants. Um, and they were remarkable people um, and very progressive in, in, in their political outlook, but very much self-made people and very much committed to the arts and to psychoanalysis and to a lot of new thinking that was, was, um, uh, that was evident in the mid-century of, of, the, of the last century. Um, and uh, so I was, I was just, and so the things I made as a kid were 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 valued and 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 put on the refrigerator door and hung up on the wall and they would come to my plays and and so my interests and my curiosities were always met with a really receptive um, audience in my parents and in my grandparents and so I'm just very fortunate that way. There are a lot of people who have made amazing careers in the arts who didn't have that and who didn't feel the love and attention of their parents, you know, but I, I have had that. And, uh, I, I know how much that meant, you know, to my confidence and my sense of the possible, um, from the, from the youngest age. Mm. All right. My last question, which is something I'm asking everybody this season, is what's a hobby or a passion that you have that is outside of your work? For me, it still is making art. And I love it. And I love to do it in relationship to my work. But I also love to do it outside my work and and make gifts of paintings for friends and portraits of family members or friends for special occasions. Um, you know, and it, and it's something I don't, you know, I, I practice to varying degrees of time and, 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 and so forth. But that, I would say that's probably the most um, regular part of my, of my extracurricular activities. Mm. Well, uh, Todd, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for the time. I could continue Thank to you talk to you and ask questions for a long time, but um, we, we do have a framework here uh, at Skip Intro. But uh, thank you for everything. The film May, December is just incredible. It is um, another great work of art from you, and I'm just thrilled that Netflix has it and cast is great. Yeah. Uh, none of them disappoint, and it's just awesome. You're an inspiration. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. Have a great day. May, December is in select theaters and will be streaming on Netflix December 1st. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm Krista Smith, your host and creator of the show. 
Skip Intro is produced and edited by Isabel Arricchio and engineered by Dave Corwin. Special thanks to our coordinator, Alyssa Hillman. Please subscribe, rate, and review Skip Intro wherever you've been listening. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. If you enjoy the podcast, please go to NetflixQ.com for more. That's NetflixQueue.com. <laughs>